Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, today was the final trading day of April, and I think it's going to go down into the record books as uh, the best month for the U.S. stock market since 1987. And of course, that was uh, a recovery from the stock market crash in 1987. And we had a bounce back from a similar uh, decline, not on one day, but on multiple back-to-back days. We had that big drop in the U.S. stock market, the most rapid descent from record highs uh, to bear market territory in, in history. And we had a relief rally inspired by the Federal Reserve. Uh, and in fact, the rally took place against the backdrop of probably some of the worst economic data that we've ever had. The data that came out in April, although it's probably not as bad as what we're going to get in May uh, and maybe even June. I mean, the markets know that we're going to get a lot of bad economic data and we got bad economic data again the last couple of days. I'm going to get into some of that uh, data now. Of course, it was worse than expected, even though they were expecting bad news. Uh, it exceeded expectations, uh, basically how bad it was. Uh, but the market rallied anyway. Of course, it's all about the Fed And in fact, the Fed fueled the rally yesterday. Um, uh, Jerome Powell gave a Zoom press conference. Uh, I thought that was kind of uh, a bit comical watching all the little boxes uh, as the reporters were asking questions. Of course, uh, nobody is actually allowed to ask a legitimate question. I mean, maybe if you have any legitimate questions uh, that might put Powell on the spot, you're not allowed in that Zoom meeting. You know, they would never allow somebody like me to ask uh, Powell a question. I mean, I have a lot of questions I'd like to ask him and try to force him to actually answer the questions. I'm sure he would do his best uh, to avoid answering any of my questions. But I'll get to uh, some of the statements that, that Powell made a little bit later in this podcast. But basically, this is the rally that the Fed built uh, despite all the horrific economic news that's going to get worse before it's not quite as bad uh, as it is now. So it's going to go from horrific to just normally bad. I don't think we're going to be getting good news. I mean, yes, we're going to snap back at some point uh, from the depths that we're going to sink to. Uh, But all we're going to do is return uh, to a recession. And then it's going to get worse from there as we ultimately have to deal with the consequences of the Fed's recent monetary policy. And when that spills over into a weakening dollar and rising consumer prices. But first, I want to discuss some of the economic data that came out just over the last few days. That was particularly bad uh, that the markets ignored. The first data point was from uh, yesterday. We got Q1 uh, GDP, right? This is uh, the estimate for the first quarter. 
And of course, if you remember on 60 Minutes, what was it? Uh, Jerome Powell, I mean, just what, in March or whenever the coronavirus first started or right after the Fed uh, went back to zero, uh, Powell said that we're not even going to have a recession. He wasn't even worried publicly about a recession coming. So he thought we probably wouldn't even have a negative GDP print for the first quarter. Uh, yet we got one that actually was bigger, a bigger negative number than was expected. So the prior quarter, the fourth quarter of uh, 2019, we had 2.1% GDP. And the consensus had come all the way down to minus 3.7. Of course, it didn't start the year uh, anywhere near that low. It just was recently, uh, the expectations came down uh, once people saw what happened in March. And that's when the expectations uh, collapsed. But instead of having minus 3.7%, we ended up with a minus 4.8%. So considerably bigger than what had been anticipated as far as the, the contraction. Of course, the big number is going to be in the second quarter because the second quarter is going to include all of April, all of May, and then June. And so remember, we didn't really start seeing the uh, COVID-19 effects in the first quarter until maybe March, kind of the second half of March before everything really started to unravel. So the, the real damage, the big damage is going to unfold in the second quarter. And maybe there'll be a bit of a recovery late in the second quarter that maybe will diminish the magnitude of the decline. But that's the big number. Now look at consumer spending too, because they were looking for minus 1.5 on real consumer spending for the quarter. And there we got minus 7.6%. So a much bigger plunge in consumer spending than had been anticipated. So we got that negative economic news that came out yesterday. Yet despite that news, we had a big stock market rally yesterday that was mainly you know, inspired by the Fed and by um, Powell being even more dovish, if one can believe that, than maybe the markets had anticipated. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back uh, to uh, what Powell said uh, yesterday and to the press conference after I finish going over some of the economic data. So let's jump forward to today because every Thursday, as you know, we get the uh, jobless numbers. And, you know, these are the big numbers now. I mean, they're in the millions. And so the consensus was for another three and a half million jobs to be lost during the week, right? This is just one week of, of job losses. So we were looking for three and a half million jobs. The prior week, we lost 4,442,000 jobs. And that was a slightly upward revised number from what we were originally told last week. Not that big, uh, maybe an extra 20,000 jobs. So, I mean, that's really just a rounding error with the numbers we got now. But they were looking for... 3.5 million jobs and we actually got 3.839 million jobs so 339,000 extra job losses more than they thought I mean just that number alone 339,000 if that number was all by itself that's a big number based on history losing 339,000 jobs but that wasn't what we lost that was the miss that was how much more jobs we lost than the three and a half million jobs that were expected uh, to have been lost. So uh, a really bad economic number. Then we also got the same time this morning, we got personal income and spending numbers. And here, as bad as the expectations were, reality was even worse. Instead of a 1.1% drop in personal income, we had a 2% drop, so almost twice as much. And on the spending side, an equal disaster. They were looking for consumer spending to drop by 4.5%. Instead, it dropped by 7.5%. And remember, again, the real bad numbers are going to come out later. Uh, these were the March numbers. I mean, March, I mean, people were still out and about for most of March. So wait till we get the April numbers, which were full lockdown mode. 
right? So obviously those numbers will be a lot weaker once we get into, uh, into April. So that was all very, very weak economic data came out early this morning. Then later on this morning, we got the Chicago PMI. Um, that was supposed to fall down to 37.9 in April from 47.8 in March, which of course is already a bad number, right? It's already in contraction. We got th- They were looking for 37.9. Instead, we got 35.4. So the bar was set low and we came in even beneath that number. You know, the interesting thing, though, about all this weak economic data, I mean, despite the fact that we got, you know, the the green light to buy gold yesterday from Powell, in case anyone didn't notice that their light was green, uh, you know, they flashed it and made it brighter. And and despite that, and gold closed off yesterday on a positive note, right? I mean, it, 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 it recovered some losses and closed near the highs of the day. Not a big gain, but technically it looked nice. It closed on the highs. And we got off to a good start this morning, especially silver. Silver was, you know, picking up pace this morning. And then we got all this bad economic news that was worse than expected. Uh, and you would have thought that gold would have gone up. Instead, all of a sudden, somebody came out and dumped a whole bunch of gold on the market, as normally happens early in the morning, and knocked gold down about 15, 20 bucks in a nanosecond. Now, obviously, with all this bad economic news and, uh, you know, an easier than expected Fed, whoever dumped all that gold, if they hadn't been so trigger happy and had they worked the order more slowly, they would have got a much better price. But again, when this happens, to me, it doesn't look like the goal of the seller is to sell at a good price. It's to knock the price down for whatever reason they have. And they were able to succeed. And then, you know, the market tried to rally back. But as soon as Christine Lagarde finished her press conference and really no major uh, announcements uh, and the ECB came out, you know, and left rates uh, unchanged, uh, which is, you know, similar to what the Fed did yesterday. They, they left rates at zero to, you know, 0.25. So, so no change there. And the Fed came out or the ECB today, uh, pretty much the same thing. But as soon as that press conference kind of ended, uh, gold got hammered again uh, for no real reason. Uh, now, the dollar got hammered a little bit, too. The euro was very strong. Ultimately, it was you know up and down for a while. But then we had a nice rally in the euro, uh, which also lifted uh, Swiss franc, uh, British pound. Uh, some of the other commodity and Latin American currencies gave back some of the gains they had yesterday. They had a pretty big day yesterday on the back of those uh, uh, more dovish than expected Fed comments. But the question is, why? When all this good news is out for gold, I mean, you can't think of a more bullish scenario is somebody coming out and just dumping gold on the market for no reason. I mean, somebody obviously is trying to uh, uh, interfere with this rally for whatever motivations they have. But what I have a feeling is that one of these days, you know, some big seller is going to come out in the gold market and like dump a bunch of gold on the market and the market's just going to absorb it. And it's like like it didn't even happen. The market's not even going to go down or it might go down very uh, short and then explode to the upside and just put an end uh, to all this attempts uh, to keep gold prices down because you're not going to be able to do it because all the fundamentals are screaming for a much, much higher gold price and we're going to have a much, much higher gold price. So in the meantime, uh, the best thing that you could do to take advantage of this is to buy uh, when you get this type of uh, selling that uh, knocks the market down. Now, also, I want to check now live the balance sheet numbers, which come out every Thursday afternoon from the Fed. And I just looked at the numbers here. And yeah, it looks like uh, the Fed has not been as uh, trigger happy. Uh, the last week, we have been going down. The balance sheet only increased by $82.8 billion dollars in the last week. And that's about one normal month of QE3. Remember, we were doing $80 uh, $80 billion a month as part of QE3. And here we only did $82.8 billion in the most recent week. That leaves the Fed's balance sheet now at $6.656 trillion. Now, of course, the stock market's been rallying, and maybe that rally has taken some of the pressure off the Fed. And maybe, you know, when the Fed comes out and says, We're going to do all it takes. We're going to print an unlimited amount of money. We're going to buy an unlimited amount of bonds. Maybe, you know, for a short period of time, just talking about how much money they're going to print 
takes some of the pressure off them because now people are not quite as nervous because they're convinced that the Fed has got their back. So that may actually make it a little bit easier until the next round of selling comes and then the Fed has to back up the truck and really start printing again, which I think uh, they're going to have to do. Uh, in fact, you know, I was uh, reading some news stories today and uh, there was, a, or I guess, a rumor floating around that the Trump administration is you know, very angry at China for unleashing COVID-19 on the world and in particular on the U.S. And so we need to get even. We need to uh, get reimbursed uh, for some of these costs. I've, I've talked about that a little bit on the podcast. But the ideas that are being bandied about are, one, let's strip China of their sovereign immunity so that Americans can file lawsuits against the Chinese government in U.S. courts and obviously win judgments. I mean, especially with a jury. Can you imagine the type of judgment that a U.S. jury is going to hand down where the Chinese Communist Party is the, the defendant and just a, any old American? I mean, there's no way the Chinese are going to get a fair trial in an American court, right? And again, I wouldn't expect the Americans to get a fair trial in the Chinese court, which is part of the reason that you have the sovereign immunity, because each side knows that the other side is not going to get a fair trial on the other guy's turf. But assuming that this happens, that we actually say, okay, you know, we could sue China and Americans could get billions or trillions of dollars worth of judgments in American courts against China, this is a very serious threat for the Chinese. But not just the Chinese, because if we could do it to China, we could do it to anybody, right? I mean, I mean, this is an example. If we can renege on, on, on a deal with China, we, you know, we could do it with anybody. But it's not just uh, opening up the Chinese to lawsuits. But I read that they're talking about canceling the debt, right? U.S. treasuries that are held by the Chinese. So that's like the leverage that we have. It's like, hey, you you owe us a trillion dollars uh, because of COVID-19. And as it just so happens, we owe you a trillion dollars because you own our treasuries. We're just going to cancel out those treasuries and we're square, right? We're all even. Uh, thank you very much, right? Because we have the ability to do that, right? There are debts, we could decide that we're not going to pay them back, right? The, any sovereign nation can default if it wants to. In fact, canceling the debt is probably worse than default. I mean, if you default, maybe the creditor is going to get something. You may not default 100 cents on the dollar. Uh, but if you just outright cancel a debt and say, hey, we're just going to wash this off. You owe us money. We owe you money. And so we're all even. I mean, that is a real, real threat. I mean, anybody who says, hey, there's no default risk on U.S. Treasuries, the fact that we are entertaining publicly the possibility of canceling out the debt, that in and of itself raises the specter of default. Because if we could cancel out the debt the Chinese have, we could cancel out the debt that anybody has. I mean, first of all, it's not like any of this debt was going to be paid anyway. I mean, of course, we're not going to pay it off. It's a giant Ponzi scheme. We're not paying anybody. Oh, yeah, as long as more people are dumb enough to loan us new money, we'll pay off the existing creditors with the money we get from the new creditors. But if the party comes to an end and people don't want to lend, we ain't going to pay. We're just going to print. It's either default or print. But if we print instead of default, then you get worthless money. So either way, I mean, we're not going to pay. But here, if we're going to say we, we, we could cancel out the debt if we believe somebody owes us money, just unilaterally make that decision, you really uh, change the nature of the game here. You really raise that specter, that level of risk in the markets on something that was sacrosanct that U.S. Treasuries are not going to default and that we have this AA plus, AAA rating. Uh, so first of all, if I were the Chinese, right, I would already be selling. I mean, I would be, holy crap, I mean, let's just play it safe. Look at this big treasury bid in the market. The Federal Reserve is buying all these treasuries. What the hell are we holding these things for? Let's dump them. Because before the U.S. government cancels the debt, before it's worthless, let's just sell it. Let's get rid of it. It's not worthless now. And of course, once the debt moves from China's hands, 
to somebody else's hands, well, now it's not going to get canceled out in theory, right? Because now the Chinese don't own it. But apparently, if they cancel the debt while the Chinese own it, then you can't even market the securities anymore because no one's going to buy a bond that's already been canceled out. So basically, there is a race now, you would think, for the Chinese to get the hell out of U.S. Treasuries. But not just U.S. Treasuries. The Chinese should get out of any dollar debt instrument because those are the only instruments that we have any jurisdiction. Because if somebody gets a judgment in the U.S. court against China, they can take that judgment to creditors, right, that owe the Chinese dollars. We could interfere with those payments. But if the Chinese divest of all U.S. dollar denominated debt, then we lose that leverage, right? And in fact, the best thing that they could do would be to take all those bonds and just buy gold because that way they don't have to deal because we have a lot of leverage over other banks. So even if the Chinese have euros somewhere or yen somewhere, we can apply pressure on those banks uh, against the Chinese. So the best thing the Chinese can do to have no counterparties and to have no concerns that we're going to try to muscle in and use or leverage the dollar's position as a reserve currency to try to punish the Chinese, what the Chinese should do is make themselves punishment-proof, judgment-proof by getting rid of these dollar obligations now and buying gold, which they should do anyway. I mean, that's a great trade anyway, even if the Chinese weren't being threatened right now uh, by the U.S. government. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. But again, by threatening the Chinese government, we're threatening everybody. All the countries around the world now have to start scratching their heads. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Do we really want to be in bed with these guys? Do we really want to own all these treasuries or dollar bonds? And remember, the United States, I mean, we got our, our, our hat out. We need money right now. Yeah, now we pretend we don't need it because the Fed could just print it. But if all we got is the Fed, we've got nothing. We've just got a printing press. We need foreign central banks to be holding our dollars. We need these trade deficits financed and we are really butting the hand that feeds us. So what, what got me into this whole conversation was talking about uh, this Fed balance sheet because basically if the Chinese are smart and they're doing the right thing, which is starting to dump more treasuries, then that means the Fed is going to have to step up and buy what the Chinese are selling. And so these numbers, these weekly balance sheet numbers are going to start to shoot up. You know, and in fact, the national debt, when I did my last podcast, you know, the national debt had moved up to, uh, what was it, $24.7 trillion, And now it's back above $24.8 trillion. I'm just going to bring it right up here on my computer to see, because sometimes it jumps so much. Uh, now we're at $24.816 trillion. So again, it's more than $100 billion higher than it was when I did my last podcast a couple of days ago. So you're talking, what, $50 billion per day in, in debt. So we need to borrow a lot of money. And when you're threatening to cancel the debt of those who are lending you money, you're not doing yourselves any favors. Let me also check the, uh, the money supply numbers, which come out every day. So we should have got money supply because these numbers come out every Thursday at 4.30. So the money supply numbers, well, this is a biggie. I mean, this is a, I mean, I mean, this, this, I mean, this should shock anybody. I mean, I think this is the biggest jump. So the prior month, or not the prior month, the prior week, this is money supply jumped by $124.8 billion. 
uh, and they revised it up slightly to 126.4 billion. But in the most recent week, the money supply surged by 363.5 billion dollars in one week. That's about a third of a trillion dollars added to the money supply created out of thin air, conjured into existence by the Federal Reserve. I mean, this is a tremendous amount of money to print probably in a year, let alone doing it in a week. Uh, So this is massive inflation, you know, really on an unprecedented scale. The fact that so many people are worried about deflation. In fact, maybe that's a good segue into the press conference that we got yesterday uh, with, uh, with Powell. Because despite the fact that the Federal Reserve now is pursuing its most reckless monetary policy in, in history, it didn't get a question about, you know, what are you going to do if we have hyperinflation or what, how are you going to prevent hyperinflation or how are you going to prevent high inflation? The only question the Fed got on this topic was, what are you going to do if we go into a deflationary spiral, right? What is the Fed going to do to save us from deflation? So none of the people at the meeting were worried about inflation or how is the Fed going to stop inflation, right, once it really gets going. No, no, no. All they're concerned about is how does the Fed stop deflation, which, of course, isn't going to happen. Now, of course, you know, when they talk about deflation, they actually mean falling consumer prices, which is never going to happen. Right. The, the only deflation that the Fed is really concerned about is when asset prices deflate. After all, they deliberately inflated asset prices to create a bubble and a wealth effect. So they wanted real estate prices to go up. They wanted stock prices to go up and they made them go up. And without the Fed, those prices would come back down. So that's the deflation that they're trying to spare us of asset prices being marked down to where they should be instead of being puffed up to where the Fed wanted them so that we would all think we were richer than we were and spend money that we didn't have. But for this guy to actually think that the worry that people have is that prices are going to go down at the the grocery store, right? That people are going to be worried about, oh, my cost of living is going down. That's never going to happen. In fact, that didn't even happen after the uh, 2008 financial crisis. We never had a year where we had a negative year-over-year CPI. No, the CPI went up every year after the financial crisis. But instead of asking about, what are you worried about deflation? How are you going to save us from deflation? I mean, I'd like to see Powell say, what are you, an idiot? (laughs) Deflation? Look at all the money I'm printing. There's no deflation. This is massive inflation, right? People need to worry about what are the effects of runaway inflation, not deflation. In fact, I was watching... On CNBC, this was an economist. I think it was from Wells Fargo Bank. And he and the, uh, this anchor were talking about inflation and, you know, kind of like, well, you know, what happens if the Fed does too much, right? What happens if, you know, we end up getting an inflation problem? What happens if they're a little too easy, the economy comes back, and inflation is a little bit too hot, right? This, this, this anchor, I forget who it was. I think it was a woman. But she asked this, this guy, you know, what would the Fed do about that? And then the guy said, well, you know, that would be a high class problem to have. I mean, you know, the Fed is really looking forward to having that problem because, see, that means that they, they defeated uh, the, the, the deflation menace, right? If we, if we end up with too much inflation, that somehow that's a good problem to have because we've, we've completely uh, taken deflation off the table and now we just have the simple problem of having too much inflation, which is a much easier problem to solve, which shows you how little uh, the mainstream really understands the predicament that the Fed is in or the nation is in and how worthless uh, networks are like CNBC that purport to be covering uh, the news, how little they understand of the situation. Look, the worst nightmare for the Federal Reserve is inflation finally breaking out in a way that they can't pretend it doesn't exist anymore. Remember, the the basis for the Fed's policy, the justification for the Fed keeping rates as low as it is and doing QE is that inflation is too low. We don't have enough inflation. They're doing this to make sure that inflation expectations don't drop, right? That we can continue to have 2% inflation. So all that is a lie. Inflation is, is, is not too low. 
but the Fed is claiming it is. Now, what would happen if all of a sudden the CPI revealed that inflation was 4% or 5% or 6%? See, now the Fed can't pretend that it's too low. I mean, if it's two and a half, three, okay, they got a little wiggle room. But once you get to 4 5%, 6%, I mean, that's it. You can't say we don't have enough inflation. And what this guy was acting like, well, that's an easy problem to solve. We get too much inflation. All the Fed has to do is tighten monetary policy and solves the problem. That doesn't solve the problem. That unleashes the problem. That, that, that causes the problem that they've been so reluctant to, uh, to, to, uh, to deal with. That's why they keep kicking the can down the road. The minute the Fed has to raise interest rates high enough to fight inflation, the economy implodes. The stock market crashes. The real estate market crashes. The bond market crashes. Everything comes collapsing down. The entire house of cards that they've been erecting just implodes. And nobody gets a bailout. Nobody gets the stimulus because the Fed is no longer financing it. The Fed is now withdrawing all the cheap money. Right? Uh, it's reversing everything. And if you thought it was problematic with you know the, the watching the paint dry when the Fed did QT before, Wait till you see what happens when they have to do a real QT in order to fight inflation. So that's not a high class problem. That's not a good problem. That's the worst of all possible problems. And the reality is that's the problem that the Fed is going to be confronted with. All they've done is delay the onset of that problem and that choice that it's going to force them to make between crashing the the economy and crashing the dollar. And of course, if they crash the, the dollar, they end up crashing the economy even more, uh, but they haven't want to make that decision. So they've constantly kicked the can down the road and they're in the process. They're trying to kick it down the road again. They just don't realize that there's no road left. One of the, you know, I think more ridiculous comments though that Powell made at this press conference is he expressed how confident he was in Congress and the programs that Congress has already passed, you know, the CARES Act, the PPP, and all the things that they're going to do, right? He was praising government for its wise policy. And so he has confidence that the economy is going to recover because of these wise uh, decisions that are being made in Washington by our leaders, which is laughable, absolutely laughable that Powell has so much confidence in the bureaucrats in Washington. And if Powell understood anything at all about economics, which he obviously does not, which is probably one of the reasons that he's Fed chairman, he would know that the free market is the vehicle best able to uh, make these decisions. Not because you have a group of men in a room who are trying to figure out the best thing, but you have millions and millions of individuals interacting with each other and pursuing their self-interest independent of one another in a market, in a free market, if you leave the free market alone, that is the best way to help the economy. That's the best way for the economy to, to recover is to allow market forces to operate unfettered. And the best thing the government could do in a situation where you have a weak economy is to reduce the burden that the government places on that economy by cutting spending and freeing up resources back to the private sector that in the past were being uh, consumed by the government at great cost to the private sector. So lighten the burden on the private sector by reducing government spending and cutting regulations, which doesn't cost the government any revenue, but which which frees up the private sector because you allow revenue that was diverted and resources that were diverted towards uh, complying with regulations and it frees those resources up to be utilized more productively, which is exactly what the economy needs uh, in times of stress. It needs to be able to use all of its resources productively. It can't afford to devote uh, significant quantities of resources towards uh, government regulations uh, that that do nothing to improve uh, the economy or public health or the environment. They're just there to generate work uh, for the regulators and to make the politicians Uh, you know, to create the appearance that they're doing something. So that's what we should be doing. But no, Powell is confident that government interference in the free market, that these socialist programs that are being created by vote-seeking politicians who are pandering to the electorate, that all of these programs are going to help. And in fact, Powell was asked specifically about the debt. 
right? Are you concerned? You know, we're running up these huge debts. Are you worried about the debt? And Powell's answer was, now is not the time to worry about the debt. Oh, really? Well, like, when do you worry about the debt? I mean, first of all, when did Powell ever worry about the debt, at least publicly? I mean, that's the problem. We didn't have enough people worried about the debt. That's why we have so much debt, because no one cared. But to say that now is not the time, okay, when is the time? Because you never wanted to deal with the debt when times were good, and so now times are bad, and you're still saying we can't deal with the debt? See, the problem is, if you always say now is not the time, then it's never the time. It's like the guy, you know, when are you going to go on a diet? Uh, I'll start a diet tomorrow. But why not start it today? Oh, no, 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 right? The guy that always wants to procrastinate and start his diet in the future is because he's never going to do it. If you're really serious about starting a diet, then go on a diet right now, right? So to say that now is not the time to deal with the debt means that it will never be the time. Of course, eventually it will be the time because there's a crisis, right? So if you wait for a debt crisis to try to deal with it, well, obviously it's too late. You waited too long, right? I mean, a lot of people might do that. I mean, they can't, you know, they're smoking and smoking and smoking, and then they finally get lung cancer, and then they say, oh, okay, I'm going to quit smoking. Yeah, why didn't you quit 30 years ago before you got diagnosed with lung cancer? Waiting until you get lung cancer and then quit smoking. I mean, what's the point? Just keep smoking at that point, right? You already got cancer. So this is basically what Powell is saying. And look, I get it. Yeah, we can't deal with the debt now because if you're a Keynesian, you believe that the way you get out of a recession is by deficit spending, except we deficit spent our way into this recession. We have a debt crisis. The solution to a debt crisis can't possibly be more debt. But in the eyes of a central banker, yes, that's always the solution. It's always the same solution. No matter what the problem is, print money, go deeper into debt. So not only did Powell say now is not the time to worry about the debt, he actually said that now is the time to take on more debt. He said the government needs to use fiscal policy now more than ever. We need to spend money we don't have. And I am ready, right? The Fed is ready to monetize any debt that the government wants to run. So any program that the government wants, don't worry about the price tag because we got it covered. We are going to make sure that none of your checks bounce because we're going to print all the money we have to so that you can pursue whatever policy you want. And, you know, Powell said, and we're going to keep this going as long as we have to, right? We're going to keep interest rates at zero. We're going to keep doing QE until we don't have to do it anymore, until the economy recovers. Well, if the economy never recovers, uh, precisely because all this stimulus is actually sedating the economy and preventing it from recovering, well, then they're never going to stop until the market gives them no choice and there is a complete sovereign debt and dollar crisis, which is coming. And believe me, it couldn't come soon enough because the sooner it comes, right, that, that it, 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 it will be less bad. As bad as it's going to be, the later we get it, the worse it's going to be. I thought one of, the, one of the more ironic questions that was asked is somebody asked Powell, what can the Fed do to make the economy more resilient in the future against these kind of shocks? Which I thought was probably the most ironic question asked because the reason that the economy is so ill-prepared now for this shock is because of the Fed, right? How would we have been more resilient and better prepared to deal with this crisis? It would have been if we had less debt. If corporations had less debt, if governments had been fiscally responsible in the past so that they could afford, if they needed to, to run deficits now because they had run surpluses in the past, if households weren't so levered up, if people had been saving more money over the years and not speculating in the markets or just buying stuff on credit, right? So if we had a more frugal population that consumed less and saved more, then we would have been more resilient. Why were we not? Why were we so completely vulnerable? It was because of the debt. And what institution is responsible for that? The Fed. How is the Fed responsible? For keeping interest rates artificially low to encourage and enable all that debt. So to ask the Fed, what are you going to do to make sure the economy is more resilient in the future? Nothing. Everything they're doing is ensuring that it will never be resilient. The, the only way Powell could answer that question honestly would be, well, we're going to have to do the opposite of everything we've ever done. We're going to have to allow interest rates to rise 
so that we can rebuild our savings and we have to discourage all this reckless borrowing to finance consumption and government spending so we, you know, we can build up a pool of savings to be resilient in the future you know, when we get a, you know, a rainy day. We need a rainy day fund. You know, we, the reason we have no rainy day fund is because the Fed drained it. You know, and it continues to drain it. So that was a kind of an ironic question. Of course, we also got the uh, obligatory question about uh, minorities. Somebody pointed out that the job losses that we're seeing now uh, are more heavily uh, concentrated or overly represented in minority communities. And Powell was asked, you know, does this concern you? Are you troubled by uh, the way the downturn is disproportionately impacting uh, minorities and of course Powell says oh yes I'm very concerned about that you know and you know like the Fed could do anything about it I mean the Fed can't target its policies towards minorities right but yes the Fed is complicit and the Fed has inflated the bubble and so as the bubble pops we're all suffering but of course Congress when they asked the Fed about this and they asked the Fed if you know ask Powell if he's concerned as if it's Powell's fault that minorities are losing their jobs disproportionately. The reason that job losses are always the most severe in minority communities is because minorities tend to be disproportionately impacted by the minimum wage law and by other laws uh, that artificially increase payroll costs, labor costs, and by all of the laws that increase specifically the costs of hiring minorities because of all the special privileges uh, that they have when it comes to non-discrimination and therefore the extra cost of hiring minorities because you now open yourself up to all sorts of frivolous lawsuits that you would avoid if you didn't hire the minority. So all of that adds up. And so whenever the, the economy turns down, it's these, a lot of these minorities are the first to get fired. You know, they are the most negatively impacted uh, by uh, the, these policies. And so what Congress needs to do, if they really care about minorities, they need to repeal these rules and regulations that so negatively impact minorities, except that's the bread and butter of their policy. These are the lousy policies, the ones that are responsible for the plight of minority communities. Those are the, the, the bread and butter issues, bread and butter issues of the Democratic Party. They want these. So it's their fault. They are the reason. Their asinine policies are the reason that the minority communities are so impacted uh, by an economic downturn. Not the Fed. The Fed's responsible for a lot of problems, but that one you got to lay on Congress. I think those are those are all the, um, the notes. And I'm actually looking at my Twitter feed because I know as I was watching this press conference, I kept, um, I kept uh, doing some tweets. And so I'm just kind of looking at uh, my own Twitter feed uh, to, to kind of refresh my memory of what I was talking about yesterday. But I want to just finish up this podcast talking about a, another aspect of the housing bubble that I've been reading a lot on. I've been talking on this podcast about why I think real estate prices are really going to get hit hard. Uh, this is the perfect storm because it's not just residential or it's not just commercial. It's commercial and residential. And when it comes to commercial, it's office uh, space and it's uh, retail space. Uh, so you've got all sorts of commercial real estate that's going to get clobbered and you got residential. But part of the residential boom was for the, the Airbnb type properties uh, where people were buying up homes specifically to rent out the houses or rooms in the houses on Airbnb or those type of uh, websites where you know, people can bypass hotels and just go rent directly from the owners. And, and so what was happening is you had some people that, sure, they just rented out a spare room in their house. So there's not really a lot of risk there. Uh, other than that, maybe you rent to a criminal or something. But if you just have a house and you just have a spare bedroom and you decide to allow somebody to rent it out, I mean, you know, you got your house house payment, you got your rent. So you're not increasing, you know, your leverage at all. And maybe if you just let somebody use your house when you're out of town, you take a vacation. So your house is empty and you rent it out. Not a lot of liability, but you can't make that much money, right? You, it's not going to be you know, a, a job if, you know, you're just renting out one room uh, in your house. 
But I think what a lot of people were doing was once they saw how it worked, they actually went out and bought properties, not that they lived in, but investment properties to rent out, but not to rent them out to long-term tenants on a yearly basis, but to just have transient tenants coming in for days or weeks at a time because if you can actually keep a place like that fully rented, you get a lot more money, right? When you're renting a apartment, I mean, I do that with my condo in, in, in here in Puerto Rico, right? If somebody rents it for a year, right? And they a month to month rent, the rent is a lot lower than when I just rent it out for a day, right? Uh, now, obviously, if I can fill up a whole month and get you know, short-term rentals, you know, I make a lot more money than having to do a long-term rental. But a long-term rental is, is more steady, more predictable cash flow. It's not as uh, you know, unreliable, right? But things were going good. And so a lot of people were like, you know what? I'm just going to buy one more house, two, three, four houses, whatever. And I'm going to rent them out. Uh, and I'm going to have like a little real estate empire. And I'm going to generate all this cash flow. And, and one of the reasons that the numbers look good on paper was the cost of servicing the debt, right? Because of the Fed and keeping interest rates so low, right? When people borrowed money to buy these houses to start renting them out, the cost was not that high because the interest on the borrowed money was low. If the Fed had allowed interest rates to rise to a real market level, then the numbers might not work out, right? People might not be willing to buy these houses and then rent them out if they had to pay a more realistic cost on the money they borrowed. But because of the artificially low rates, uh, they were able to you know, get good positive cash flow. But that all assumes that you're renting out your units, right? Now, all of a sudden, COVID-19 happens and all the rentals go away. So you got somebody that has two, three, four or more rental homes and they got no tenants, but they got mortgages. What are they going to do with all these properties? They can't afford to pay the rent, right? Now, obviously, maybe they're going to forbear. They don't have to pay the mortgage for a few months. But even after um, this is over, people are not going to rush and, and rent out people's homes. They're going to be a little germphobic for a while. Plus, we're going to be in a recession, which was going to diminish the demand anyway. And probably a lot of the hotels, maybe they're going to be cutting their prices because not as many people are going to be traveling. So the hotels are going to have more vacancies. And so they're going to have room to lower their prices. And now it may not look as attractive to just rent somebody's house that may not be quite as clean. Or maybe you're a little worried about the germs. Maybe I'd rather go with a, a branded hotel, especially if they're offering a big discount because they got a lot of empty rooms. So I think it's going to be really, really difficult for these mini you know, hotel moguls on Airbnb to survive. And so what I think a lot of these people are going to do is they're going to put these homes on the market. If they can no longer cash flow positive, even with these low rates, of course, if rates ever explode, then they're really done. But even with these rates, if they're not getting enough turnover, if they're not getting enough rental, and even if they, maybe if they put the properties on the market and they take a long-term lease, they may not get enough, right? They may not get enough uh, revenue. So they're going to try to sell. Remember I talked about how you had, the realtors were saying, oh, there's no, there's, there's no supply, right? There's a shortage of houses, so this is not a problem. And, I'm, and I said on the podcast, just wait, a lot of the houses that are not on the market are going to be on the market. Well, a lot of these houses that are owned by people who are renting them out, right? They're not on the market now. In a few months, they're going to be on the market because the people who bought them are going to try to unload them, right? To get out from under these mortgage obligations because they're not going to be able to generate the cash flow. And by the way, we got some housing numbers too that, that came out this week. Again, they were worse than expected numbers. They came out uh, yesterday pending home sales, right? And... They were looking for minus 10% for March pending home sales, right? The prior month was 2.4 positive, which they revised down to 2.2. But they were looking for minus 10. They got minus 20.8. So the number was twice as bad as the bad number they were expecting. Yet I was watching some coverage of this bad number and the realtors were like, oh, you know, we're not worried. We still think real estate prices are going to go up this year, right? I mean, only a realtor can be that clueless uh, about real estate, right? How could you think? 
that with everything that's going on right now, all of the problems that specifically relate to real estate, that despite all this, house prices are actually going to go up, right? I guess you'll, you'll never meet a realtor who's ever going to concede that house prices are going to go down because no matter how bad it gets, no matter how much evidence that you put in front of a realtor that there's a bunch of problems, they're going to ignore it all and say, yeah, but housing prices are still going to go up. So just buy, just pay whatever price that they ask for because it's, your house is going to go up and it's going to be worth more. This is a major, major uh, housing disaster uh, that is before us. And if it wasn't for the Fed and all the money printing, right, the, the nominal price would collapse even more. I mean, the Fed is ultimately going to put some type of nominal floor beneath the market. But still, I think we're a ways away from that floor. I think we're going to see a, a pretty good depreciation, even with a lot of inflation, which is going to show you uh, just how much uh, the, uh, the price is really going to go down, real estate prices. Oh, by the way, one more thing I wanted to mention. Uh, I had uh, uh, a Joel Gilbert on. I interviewed him on my podcast. He produced the Trayvon Martin hoax. And I had encouraged people to go out and, and buy a copy of that documentary. Well, if you didn't buy it, you're in luck. You can watch it for free. It's on YouTube. It's there. Uh, it's for a limited time. I guess it's one of the things that you know you get for free now while you're held up uh, in, uh, in isolation and quarantine in your home. Uh, you can take uh, about two hours and, and watch that uh, documentary. Very well done. Very entertaining. Of course, since it's come out, again, the mainstream media will not touch this with a 10-foot pole. Even though it proves beyond kind of a shadow of a doubt the fraud that was committed uh, by the Trayvon uh, Martin family and their attorneys uh, on the entire nation, despite the overwhelming evidence of, of jury manipulation and, and, and evidence fraud and, and, and witness fraud, despite all that, uh, the, the media won't touch this. Nobody wants to mention it because everybody is afraid that if they point it out, they're going to be called racists. Uh, for even pointing out the truth. So in order to prove that you're not a racist, you have to perpetuate a lie. Uh, well, I'm not worried about people calling me a racist because I know I'm not, and I care about the truth. And the truth has no color. Uh, the truth only has the facts, and the facts are clearly laid out in this uh, documentary. <music>